Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. Up first, we have our monthly roundup of prison disturbances as compiled by Perilous Chronicle. There has been much media attention around the escape of Gonzalo Lopez near Centerville, Texas. Lopez escaped while being transported by bus from the Alfred D. Hughes unit in Gatesville for a medical appointment. His escape sparked one of the largest search efforts for an escaped inmate in Texas history, lasting over three weeks and resulting in his death by the police. Lopez was accused of killing five people during his escape. While Perilous does not track individual escapes or escape attempts, Texas Senator John Whitmere reported that during Lopez's takeover of the prison bus, other prisoners created a distraction by singing and jumping up and down as Lopez freed himself and attacked a guard. Officials claim that 16 other prisoners knew of his attempt to escape and aided in it. On May 30th, around 1 p.m., two prisoners detained at the Acadiana Center for Youth in Bunky, Louisiana, escaped from the facility. No further details have been provided, and there has been no information about their recapture. As Perilous will expand later regarding the uprising at the Bridge City Center for Youth, there have been numerous escapes and disturbances at juvenile detention centers in Louisiana in the past few years, including an escape in February of 2022. Two detainees at Clearfield County Jail in Clearfield, Pennsylvania, escaped from a work crew while cutting grass. According to reports, they took off their uniforms and left. One prisoner was recaptured on June 17th, the other prisoner was recaptured on Sunday, June 26th in Lawrence Township. The two others were arrested and charged for quote-unquote hindering apprehension. On the evening of June 2nd, three prisoners held at Barry County Jail in Cassville, Missouri, escaped by cutting a hole in the ceiling into a water heater storage room and breaking through an exit door. Their escape wasn't discovered until the next morning. One prisoner was recaptured on June 8th in Casper, Wyoming. Another prisoner was recaptured on June 13th in Springfield, Missouri. The final prisoner was recaptured on June 14th in San Antonio, Texas. All three prisoners have been charged with one count of escape. The sheriff of Barry County Jail said that staff shortages contributed to prisoners being able to escape. Only two guards were working at the facility during the escape. On the evening of June 4th, five prisoners escaped from the Star Community Justice Center in Franklin Furnace, Ohio. According to reports, the prisoners escaped through a fence at the facility. Allegedly, one of the prisoners' fiancé and her ex-husband assisted in the escape by throwing bolt cutters over the fence to allow the prisoners to cut through it and escape. They've both been arrested and charged with assisting in the escape. Two prisoners were recaptured that evening in the surrounding area. Two other prisoners were recaptured in nearby Wheelersburg, Ohio, the following day. The last prisoner was recaptured in Brown County, Ohio. The date of recapture is unknown, but he was held at the Clinton County Jail starting June 11th. At Hogan Street Regional Youth Center, where many other juveniles have escaped this year, three more teens escaped on June 5th. 
The teens lured an employee into a bathroom, assaulted him, took his keys, and locked him inside the bathroom before breaking a window and escaping together. One of the three have been rearrested. No other details regarding the rearrest of the others is available. On June 6th, two prisoners walked out of the Federal Correctional Institution satellite camp in Millington, Tennessee. The men may have escaped several hours before authorities reported them missing at about 5 p.m. on June 6th. As of June 27th, the two men have not been rearrested. Two women assaulted a detention deputy during an escape attempt at Hillsborough County Jail in Tampa, Florida on June 7th. The women feigned sickness in order to lure the deputy into a bathroom where they placed a pillowcase over her head and forcibly tried to take the keys to their unit. Other prisoners and staff intervened in the assault and prevented the escape. The two women are now facing additional charges. At least 16 prisoners being held in solitary confinement at the State Correctional Institution Green in Waynesburg, Pennsylvania, began a hunger strike on June 7th. Three prisoners are still striking, according to the Corrections Department. These prisoners will continue the strike until Pennsylvania Department of Corrections offers them a pathway out of solitary confinement. On Thursday, June 16th, five people detained at the Bridge City Center for Youth in Bridge City, Louisiana, escaped the facility at 2.20 in the morning. According to reports, they escaped through a bathroom ceiling. Four of the prisoners were recaptured shortly after. The last prisoner was recaptured the next day. At least 20 prisoners have escaped from this facility in about a year, and some officials claim the cause is staff shortage. Later the same day, about 20 prisoners took over the facility. Jefferson Parish's office SWAT team was called to the facility. Two prisoners and one staff were injured and taken to the hospital. They have all been released in good condition. Juvenile detention centers in the state have faced special scrutiny amidst a wave of escapes, uprisings, suicides, and the revelation that solitary confinement for use in the state is a common practice, according to a recent report by the Marshall Project. At 5.53 on Sunday, June 19th, two women detained at the Anderson County Detention Facility in Clinton, Tennessee, escaped from the facility. They allegedly walked off from a work crew and quote-unquote drove off in a vehicle. They were recaptured roughly 30 minutes later. No other details have been provided. This week, we share the final part of a conversation about Rikers Island with Bella Bravo and Jared Shanahan. Shanahan is a writer, activist, and professor of criminal justice based in Chicago. He's been on previous episodes discussing mass incarceration and the George Floyd Rebellion. We're speaking today about his new book, Captives, How Rikers Island Took New York City Hostage. We encourage you to listen to last week's episode with Jared as he gives some of the history of Rikers, and this time, he walks us through some of the systemic issues facing abolitionists. Here they are. It's very important, you know, when you meet a prison reformer who is telling you about all the wonderful things that are going to happen in a facility that they want to build, you need to realize that this person is going to have no control over how this facility is actually going to run when it's open. This is a consistent feature throughout the history of incarceration. There are very intelligent, well-meaning, insightful people who sit down at the drafting board and create these ornate plans to solve social problems in jails and prisons. But at the end of the day, they are not run by the social workers or the do-gooders. They are run by the custodial guards, the, cust- the, the custodians, right? 
And um, as we've seen throughout American carceral history, guards are a very powerful organized political force that pushes back against the idea that they have to be social workers, that they have to respect prisoners' rights. In fact, the rise of the prisoner rights movement in the United States had the adverse effect of creating within guards a violent aversion to the existence of prisoners' rights, which we see enduring to this day in places like Rikers. So people like Anna Cross do not control how prisons and jails are run. But what they can do is they can lend the construction of prisons and jails a progressive veneer. One way you poke through that veneer in captives is that you show how every major reform, policy change, or expansion at Rikers really originated with a prisoner revolt and a corresponding response by the rank-and-file guards. So with this in mind, what led to the massive expansion of Rikers in the 1980s? In the year 1970, a number of Black and Brown revolutionaries were locked up in the New York City jail system, including some folks who would go on to take part in the Attica uprising. Um, And this was in large part because the city had adopted an aggressive stance towards uh, revolutionaries um, since the arrival of the Black Panther Party. So the, the Panthers and the cops were effectively at war with each other by this point. And whereas in cities like Chicago, the cops went ahead and just executed the leadership. In New York, they were a little bit more savvy. They tied up the people they perceived to be the Panther leadership in what was the longest trial in New York City history up to that point. Um, And this is actually a very instructive lesson that I think some of us who do activism have experienced, how um, even if the case is ultimately thrown out or even if it's pled down to some bullshit, which is what happened to me, these, these kinds of cases can have a, a real debilitating effect on organizing. You know, most of your resources go toward defense, right? And your general, everybody becomes kind of paranoid, right? And so this is what happened to the Panthers. And the city had done this on the correct assumption that it would help demobilize the revolutionaries. But what it got as a side effect was a whole lot of them in the city's jails. At, and at a time when there was a lot of sympathy in the black and brown working class for groups like the Panthers. And so in 1970, you have um, a spate of um, spectacular jail rebellions throughout New York City um, with a lot of the the Black revolutionaries at the center. Um, This has been written about compellingly uh, by Toussaint Lozier and Orisami Burton, or two excellent scholars who I, I was able to draw a lot from in piecing together these events. What the jail rebellions produced in New York City was actually the advent of a progressive regime, Um, not just through the city's um, civilian agencies like the Board of Correction, um, which became uh, very liberal, almost activist at this point in time, but also um, through the intervention of the federal court, um, which became involved in New York City's jails in the wake of the 1970 jail rebellion. It actually, in a way that um, they still remain to this day. In fact, I'm not a legal scholar, but I'm pretty sure that the first case that was filed in the immediate aftermath of the 1970 jail rebellion has snowballed into other cases, which have snowballed into other cases 
and that it's actually still remains open today as as Nunez, because the, they, these cases um, that which allege uh, unconstitutional conditions in New York City's jails can never actually be resolved, because in order to resolve them, New York City would have to stop having unconstitutional conditions in its jails, which it can't do. And so, actually, this is, this is some of the longest running legislation I, I think in American history. Well, so anyway, this created a kind of a kind of pincer on uh, the city jail system. So you had um, at the same time as the city government was attempting, which I believe in good faith um, through agencies like the Board of Correction to rationalize and reform the worst aspects of the city jails. And the federal judiciary was was attempting to impose uh, basic constitutional standards on the jails. You had the 1974-1975 the fiscal crisis, which led to the effective gutting of much of New York City's public service infrastructure and mass layoffs that disproportionately targeted uh, black and brown people. You had a general turn towards what we today call austerity politics, uh, meaning that this, the city you know, after this revolt by Wall Street, when Wall Street said, we're sick of paying for all these, these programs that mainly help Black and Puerto Rican people, the, the city was forced to rely not on the, the carrot of, you know, public services, public housing, public employment, all the rest of it, but was forced to rely on the stick of prisons, policing, uh, incarceration. And this is, this is where you start to see mass incarceration on the rise, right? This is what if, if Heather Ann Thompson was more honest with herself, she would, she would, she would identify this as the moment. Um, and it's a political economic turning point. It's not a turning point in, in the attitudes of jail administrators or whatever. The city's jails as a point, at, at this point just got progressively worse because they were forced to absorb growing numbers of prisoners at the time when the city was not funding um, new carceral construction. Um, they were being told to do more with less, basically the same as everybody else was. And the, the conditions at this time were positively ghoulish. I mean, something I tried to do in the book is to really describe what it would have been like, for instance, to have to share a cell with two other people in the tombs, right? Because that's the kind of thing that you can just read and say, oh, they had triple selling, that's terrible. But it's like, no, 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 no. Think about it for a minute. You're in a, you're in a cell that's like just about... It's just long enough that you can lay down in the bed and it's probably three or four feet across. And as you're sharing this with, with two other adults, right? It's just, that's actually a nightmare, right? At some point in the book, you have Asada Shakur's like introduction to Rikers and it yeah. takes up a full page and it's basically just a transcript of her talking about it. And at one point, one of the, I think the doctor who comes up to her, she's like, it doesn't seem like this person's a doctor. He just basically looks like a guard or something. And he's coughing. And he like actually just like coughs all over her. And he's, and he's dirty himself. Um, and, it, and he's the person who's like supposed to be offering her some sort of like medical examination. And so it does exactly what you're trying to do is like, show like, oh, here's this tiny little window that you get. But actually see how this is like, yeah. it takes every every protective measure and actually inverts it and turns it into a terrifying situation. I'm glad you brought that up because if you were to read on paper, like on institutional paper, a description of Asada Shakur's 
medical intake, it would just say like every prisoner is given an opportunity to meet with a medical professional and is assessed for a variety of diseases to make sure that they will be safe and comfortable. <laughs> and this is the this is the institutional literature, right? This is how this is how they write. And yeah, and then you get Asada's account of it, and she said she said this guy looked like a Bowery bum. Those are her words. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Coughing all over me. She said the only good thing about the visit is he only took about thirty seconds to examine me, so it was over as soon as it began. Right. Right. The the he rattled off a list of diseases, which is him quote unquote checking to see if yeah. she had any. And it's like, no. <laughs> exactly. Right. And so I, I tried my best to to kind of to pull back the, the veil of institutional jargon as much as I could. But but so anyway, just just to to set the table for the 1980s, the city was forcing its jails to manage this the symptoms of this disastrous moment for working class people, which was the imposition of austerity. I mean, this operated in tandem with the Rockefeller drug laws and the, the rise of zero tolerance policing around, around drugs, which were basically gave the police a blank check to lock up just about anybody that they wanted to move off of the streets, um, given the, the, the popularity and, and prevalence of, of drugs in a lot of neighborhoods hit hardest by mass incarceration. And so you had this moment where the city had to take some kind of decisive action uh, because in 1983, the federal judiciary ruled that, you know, after 13 years of dragging its feet and just kicking and screaming through every uh, step of the, the, the court system, the city would, had, find, had insulted the federal judiciary one too many times. At one point, they were ordered to simply come up with a plan for how they were going to reform the jails. And they couldn't even do that. They couldn't, they, they didn't even write. I mean, something we could do in an afternoon if we had to, right? And so the fe federal judge Morris Lasker said, okay, like this is something that a lot of people don't know used to be the standard for incarceration. He said, if you cannot provide a constitutionally sound conditions for incarceration, you are not able to incarcerate people anymore. It's one of those things that actually makes sense constitutionally, right? But it's to our 21st century ears sounds like completely insane. And so basically he ordered that the release of some 400 prisoners who were over and above the maximum capacity that he had set for Rikers. And these were mostly low-level offenders who were going to be back on the streets soon anyway. But by that point, the city government, led by Mayor Koch, had built up their entire legitimacy around this tough-on-crime nonsense that you see Eric Adams doing today. And the problem with a mayor who runs saying that they're going to crack down on crime is like, it's like a, someone running for president saying they're going to fix the economy. It's like, even if you want to do it, you probably can't. It's like, this is, you're describing massive social processes that no one person has any control over. And so rather than admit that, Koch came out and said, okay, this federal judge has decided that our jail system is not adequate for the large scale human caging of New Yorkers. So now it's time to take decisive action. We have to spend a ton of money, right? And it wasn't on public housing or public schools or public employment, right? We have to build, spend a ton of money building as many jails as possible on Rikers Island. So it never again gets to the point where a judge can tell us that we don't have the space. We wanna be able to cage as many people as humanly possible. And so throughout the eighties, they built pretty much every facility that on Rikers today. At a certain point by the mid eighties, it wasn't even keeping up with the rise of the jail population anymore. By the mid to late 80s, they had effectively caught up. 
right? They were building so quickly. They were anticipating future increases in the Rikers population to the point where they, they created the infrastructure so that by the, the mid-1990s, there were 22,000 people housed there. That reminds me of the like current abolitionist slogan, if you build it, they will fill it. And at the beginning of Captives, you say, um, paraphrasing historian, revolutionary and Marxist CLR James, historical controversies are always about the present. So now Captives chronicles up to present day proposals for New York City's jail. So thinking about you know, if you build it, they will fill it. Tell us what the difference is between the hashtag close Rikers campaign and the no new jails campaign. Well, that's a great question. I mean, this is, I was working on this project when that debate was really ramping up in New York City. So for the listeners unaware of this, Rikers, you know, beginning in the early 20-teens, entered into a series of increasingly destabilizing scandals. The, probably the most famous one being the death of Khalif Browder, who took his own life after years of being held there on false pretenses, but also um, the uh, federal investigations into the brutality there and the revelation of just widespread corruption and brutality throughout the island. I try not to talk too much about corruption in the book because I think that focusing on corruption let, lets the system off the hook by pointing to its excesses rather than how it functions according to its own laws, right? Uh, but I mean, this Rikers is a very corrupt, nasty place, right? Mean, nasty, corrupt, violent. And so by, by 2015 or so, 2016, when I was there, there was a growing consensus in New York City official society that Rikers' uh, Rikers's time had come, right? And there's parallels to the demise of Blackwell's Island, actually which went through a, a similar spate of scandals that were increasingly bad until the city finally said, okay, fine, we have to fix this and we have to abandon this, this particular piece of infrastructure. So when, when I got out, actually, I, I was checking in with my, my uh, probation officer and someone was outside flyering for the campaign to close Rikers. And they were like, what do you know about Rikers? And I was like, oh, I just got off that place. It's a real shithole, you know? And then we, we became... We became kind of friendly and I started going to the meetings for Close Rikers. I thought it was really cool. You know, they were campaigning to close Rikers Island. I can support that, right? Um, they had a lot of nonprofit money, which I was suspicious of, but whatever, you know, it's nice to have things. And so I actually asked an abolitionist friend for advice. And uh, this is Jana Curti, who I write with. And she said something very prescient. She's like, yeah, you know, there are friends as long as they want to close down jails. And as soon as they want to build new ones, they're not our friends anymore. And that could be the epitaph of my relationship with close Rikers because uh, after a while, it became clear that they weren't just campaigning to close Rikers. They wanted to build a network of jails throughout the city to replace Rikers using very much the same rehabilitative ideology that had led to the creation of Rikers in the first place. And if you, they produced a number of texts, right? This is, this is big money for like a lot of people have been, been dining out on this for years. They produced a number of texts arguing their point of view. And in one of them, this judge, uh, Jonathan Lippman, who led this commission to study the uh, replacement of Rikers with new jails argues basically, 
He said, jails should be centers of civic unity. Those are the words. But jails are not living up to their potential, right? Their social potential. Yeah, exactly, right? So this is, this is liberal idealism at its finest, right? The problem with jails is not the class violence that they represent, right? The problem is that they're, they're not being run properly, right? The, the people administering the jails haven't read enough social science books, right? Uh, the guards haven't had to sit through sensitivity training, right? The, the, guard, the guards haven't been properly educated in empathy, right? All this, all this ideology. And so as Close Rikers came out in support of these new jails, an abolitionist current emerged in response to them, no new jails. And I think that some iteration of this group still survives through the No New Jails Network. And they were able to intervene very effectively in the public discourse. And then I became involved with them uh, shortly after they popped up onto the scene. And I think that they demonstrated that there is really a public appetite for abolitionist ideas because they were coming out and saying, these people are offering up the same old wine in new jars, right? We've heard all this before. What we need to do is we need to attack these problems at the root. And they put together this very impressive document that was like an alternative budget for what New York City could do with the $9 billion that it was planning to spend on these new jails. And it was, it was just kind of like left Keynesian kind of new deal for black New York policy. And I thought it was really cool. Um, I think more important than anything that no new jails said or did, because um, it was a very small organization, you know, it wasn't without its problems. More important than anything about that organization or its organizers, I think, is how far they were able to get in this debate. So after a person reads captives, what do you hope they take away? What do you hope they do with this history? To my mind, the New York City Department of Correction has forfeited all legitimacy to cage people. And I think that it's very important to learn the history of ways that they have used progressive ideas and progressive individuals to recapture this legitimacy in moments when it's threatened. So I went to a bunch of these meetings in New York that were, you know, in support of the new jails. And I had some colleagues who kind of got sucked into this, like, oh, participatory design. We're going to sit down with a bunch of former prisoners and we're going to design a prison together. I said, I don't even think the Marquis de Sade thought about that. That's just next level evil. And so I think it's really important to recognize the way that these progressive jail reformer types are really whether they know it or not, are serving to bolster the legitimacy of a system that has rightfully lost it. Because at the end of the day, when people come out in favor of humane forms of incarceration and building better jails and all the rest of it, what they're really coming to the defense of is human caging. And not just human caging, but the violent capitalist social order that necessitates human caging. And so this is a moment I think that we should be pushing with everything we have to discredit these institutions. They are awful, inhumane, racist failures, right? And I think that a lot of people, um, especially who go into uh, professional fields, whether it be in so-called academia or the nonprofit sector, get kind of 
shoehorned into this position where they feel that they have to defend the left wing of the existent social order. You know, there's there's this kind of cliche in progressive social justice, criminal justice circles where they say like, oh, the the police have lost legitimacy and that's the problem. I said, no, that's not the problem. The problem is what legitimacy they have left, right? The problem is that there's anybody walking around who still thinks that there's any anything positive about the American police that needs to be rescued from the actions of people like, you know, Darren Wilson or whatever. And so I, to my mind, it's, this is the moment when we can really push to say these institutions have failed, there, there's no reforming. Thanks to Jared and Bella. Jared's book is available through Verso Books. This has been KiteLine. Please check out our new searchable website with hundreds of archived shows at kitelineradio.org. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Thank you for listening.